Hello there. Just a heads up before things get started, this episode contains some strong language. Hello, and welcome back to the Review Squared again. Yes, <laughs> we, we just can't stop making episodes for some reason. We're just chained to the pod, all of us. Um, so, Janelle, um, glad to have you on today. Hi, Gideon. Glad to be on. And, you know, journalism is an interesting field. <laughs> and I know you have some thoughts about it. And that's going to be our show today, I guess. Yeah, Janelle, you got thoughts, don't you? Yep, I have thoughts, unfortunately. Um, I wish I had fewer of them, but alas, I have some, so. Yes, um, the uh, we were saying this off the air, but I feel like this is worth repeating. No, ho- no thoughts, just vibes is the 2020 mantra now. Um, that, that's <laughs> no thoughts, just vibes. Anyways, <laughs> but on this show, there will still be thoughts. And let's go on. Anyways, I'm getting karaoke. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm John Brown. And I'm Haley Smilo. And our guest panelist. Janelle Salonga. Glad to have you once again, Janelle. And yes, yeah, so talk to us. What have you got this week? Hi. So I already said hi, but my story, um, I suppose, for this week is something that I covered um, through a Q&A for the media outlet or the media criticism outlet, um, The Objective, really recently. Um, And basically there's a movement called Public Media for All that was um, spearheaded by a coalition of eight people who launched it officially on October 1st this year. And around a month later, they held something called the Day of Activism and Education um, centered around basically talking about how public media isn't really for the public. Um, As you know, NPR is really white, both in its listenership and its, newsroom makeup. And that kind of goes against the whole idea of public media being for the, what the, I guess, diverse composition of the nation looks like. But but that's where this movement comes in. So a lot of organizations like NPR itself has signed on to commit to doing a set, a set of action steps, um, including committing to paying all interns within one year, um, creating space for people of color within organizations to um, heal and talk out previous um, pain points with the ways that um, media has, or public media, their stations specifically have treated them. Um, And so the movement itself is, or the coalition itself is really cool in that um, when I sat down and talked with a couple of members of the coalition, JC Polk and Ernesto Aguilar, they brought up, they continually emphasize that their goal is to invite a lot of organizations, a lot of allies, um, folks who really want to see, you know, the, the three key words, diversity, equity, and inclusion in public media. Um, 
And one of the questions that came up in our discussion was, you know, how do you tie together these two threads of reform and revolution in journalism? And that's also something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, just because, you know, there are people who say, okay, like there are, you know, these actionable steps that you can take to make your organization have a better work culture for non-white folks, for, you know, non-cis folks, um, or for trans folks specifically. And um, there's also, um, you know, folks who also say, you know, if your entire board of directors is white, like maybe that shouldn't be the case. Maybe they should all resign and step down. And so there are all sorts of ideas on this continuum of ways to improve pub, not just public media, but journalism organizations in general to better serve people. And so I guess that's what I'm posing to everyone today, what their thoughts are on a, I guess, um, ways to make journalism more equitable and be like where you see yourself maybe falling on that kind of continuum of responses um because I have thoughts but I'm curious about other folks first um I will go first because as pretty much everyone on this panel can attest I have very complicated very honestly like uh, like journalism deep down actually just makes me want to like cry and like just just like this feeling of anger like just this feeling of so much anger like even like at our school, um, the Cronkite School, like I've identified many problems about how even not just newsrooms, but like journalism colleges and schools like are failing their students and like how that process can like lead um, a person to not wanting to pursue um, a job in that field anymore. And I think for me, it's really frustrating to see the response of uh, institutions and like, publications being like, oh, we're just gonna give you, we're just gonna give people of color a bunch of jobs, but we're not gonna make sure that they're secure in that job or that they feel safe or like that they're like, you know, feel like that environment is made for them. They just kind of put them in there being like, oh, we gave them a job, but you know, they're not teaching them or giving them the tools to sort of thrive in that type of environment because many of them probably have not had that type of newsroom experience before, like including me. And so, one thing I'm wondering is like, yes, like we can, you know, newsrooms and publications have so many different ways of opening different opportunities for people of color and giving them positions or internships all about like, we can throw opportunities at people all day, but you know, the opportunities don't really mean much if there's not, you know, I'm not saying like, I don't want anybody to listen to this and think that like, I want my hand held throughout the whole process. But to have like a solid mentorship and a solid kind of like, um, you know, that relationship with people, with veteran journalists who will, you know, I don't feel like if I go to them with a question or, you know, concerns about not knowing how to either do something or how to do something a certain way or whatever, because, you know, journalism is a lot of technicalities, you know, a lot of different things that, you know, it's, it's just the small things. And it's like, I want to make sure that when I step in a newsroom, I don't feel like I will be ignored if I go to a veteran journalist and ask them a question or feel like dumb for not knowing it. Like, I think one part that can be improved is those people who have been in the business for a long time to be more open to answering questions and mentoring younger journalists. Because 
I do know a lot of veteran journalists who are open to taking on those mentorships or teaching, but then I also feel like there's a whole section of veteran journalists who are just want nothing to do with early career journalists at all. Yeah, to add on to that, yeah, you made a really good point. I think with the whole veteran journalist conversation, um, I've, I don't know if I've had the best experience with veteran journalists, but I think there's so many problems that not just Cronkite has done, but probably many journalism schools in general. It's, we're on, I feel like we're almost like on a period chart almost where we're all competing against each other because um, we're not like lifting each other up in a sense. I personally at Cronkite, many of the students, not all, many are, they're competitive because yes, journalism is a competitive career, but I feel like they're like mean and they have like, a, they're narcissistic in maybe like a small sense. And that's why, I don't know. I haven't had the best experience with Cronkite. And I think some of the professors are very like, they thrive off of their ego. Again, not all, only some, but um, it's just, I want to learn at this school. I really do. But when they constantly deny people from opportunities, like let's say for an internship, for instance, yes, people can get prior like experience with journalism in high school, but not everyone has that opportunity and not every high school affords that to each student. And the point of an internship is to get experience. So if you keep denying someone and you keep like telling someone to get experience, that's not helping the student at all. And it's frustrating because you're paying so much money for this really, really good journalism school that you're not getting anything out of. Um, it's just, it's like getting like a first job and they tell you to get experience. Where are you supposed to get experience if no one is going to hire you? It's kind of like that situation almost. But I just feel like I haven't had the best like um, experience with them so far. I mean, journalism is definitely a very competitive like industry. Um, I argue in some sense that you don't need a college degree for journalism because you can learn. I've learned more on my own than um, some of like the professors have taught. And I just think if you're going to like charge so much, I think you should offer more. And I think veteran journalists should be offering more back to the community. Cause I know in bigger markets, like where I live, there's so many egotistical veteran journalists who think they're just cause like in their, they're in like a top 10 market. You can be mean to everyone else, but like we started at the same place. It's just, I just wish we we're a more uplifting community. Like there's, I've met so many great people. I just, I have a problem with some of them who think that they're better than others because they've had previous high school experience. Um, whereas others have like not been afforded that opportunity. And another thing I wanna add is quickly with unpaid internships is and professional programs that are not being paid. And the fact that unpaid internships still exist is, it blows my mind. It's literally, you're, and they're always like, oh, it's for credit. Okay, so you should still be getting paid. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous now because we're like full-time students. It's the same thing with professional programs, which is like, uh, to explain a professional program, 
um, our school is, um, they have like a newsroom you can like work in through like the school. Um, someone can explain it better to me, but there's a bunch of professional programs that are basically meant to get you ready for the professional industry and they're not paid. And you have to dedicate at least like two days out of the week to for this program. And it's just the amount of problems this school has is astronomical. And in no way I'm trying to put this school down. I'm just speaking my mind and trying to, or at least hoping they would improve. And to elaborate a little bit more on what a professional program is, John, I do think you did a better job than you think you did <laughs> explaining them. Um, more or less, it's a part-time job. You go in, like John said, two out of the five days of the work week, right? And you spend pretty much like eight to five o'clock there, dedicating your entire day. So it also affects not only your ability to do work for pay outside of school, but your ability to take other classes for other parts of your degree, because most journalism students that I know, myself included, are also doing minors and certificates. Some people are doing double majors. And so to have this take up such a big part of your schedule without being compensated for it, except in the kind of way that you're working for exposure or working for experience so late in your academic career, it, it blows my mind also. And another thing that I wanted to kind of track back to is the idea of veteran journalists giving back to the community. I think the way that the professional culture has become kind of a rat race for us that so early we're just dropped into with no very little to no guidance or help, especially if you're not someone who was lucky enough to have prior experience in high school. It's, it's really disheartening to see because I think it all comes down to this bigger picture perception that there's a lack of, there's a finite amount of space in journalism for people to be taking up. And I just don't think that's true. There's so many ways that we could be expanding this industry. There's so many places and niches that can and sometimes need to be filled so that we can serve our duty to the public. And yet there's also this per prevailing attitude, at least that I'm seeing of pushing other people down to get where you feel that you need to go when really all that does is keep everyone down, except for a select few. And really, truly, it is, I think, discouraging, especially to people who are from a less privileged background that want to get into journalism. It's If it's all about who you know and not really, truly what you can do, how are we supposed to be getting better as an industry? How are we supposed to be improving upon what we're trying to build by creating more opportunities for journalists of color, for LGBT journalists, for disabled journalists, which by the way, I see very little of. And I think it's so sad because there's such a rich variety of stories that we could be telling from within those communities that we're kind of 
being parachute journalists, which it's still so important to report on communities that you're not necessarily a part of and giving them a voice. But we could also be seeing those stories, I think, from inside those communities. And we're just not. And I think it does come back to the idea that there's a limited amount of space in the industry. When I just, I don't think that's true. I want to know what you guys think about that. FJK saying your job as a journalist, my goal as a journalist and what you should be doing as a journalist is to tell stories. Someone has a story to tell and it's not something absolutely off the walls, crazy, mental, and it's probably going to harm the well good of humanity, then it is a story worth telling. Whether you, you like, should you get paid to tell that story? Yeah, because you need to eat food and you need to pay rent. But like, it's a story that needs to be told. And as journalists, ultimately what we are at the end of the day is storytellers. Are there problems within that? A hundred percent from the top, from like the New York Times or CNN, whoever you want to call the top, all the way down to high school newspapers. Like these two things are not comparable, but there's problems in every single level of journalism that need to be fixed. And where those fixes are, I wish I could tell you, because if I could snap my fingers and fix all the problems, that would be great. I can give you plenty of solutions, but if the people around us aren't gonna help implement them, as we had someone say to us yesterday who's been in journalism a lot longer than the rest of us have professionally, it's our generation that's gonna need to implement these changes. And it's like what John was saying earlier, if we have these egotistical people who want nothing but self-promotion and the best for them, go for it. Sure, you do you, but I'm going to be over here doing what I want to do, helping the people I love and care about and raise them. I'd rather see these people, these people I'm talking to right now, succeed than myself, to be honest. They're, like, we're here talking, we're here making shows for, as Alejandro said, our audience, we love you guys, but like, we're not the super listening to, listen to radio show. I'm not doing this to have people hear my voice. I'm doing it because I like telling stories and I like doing journalism. And like, if that's not what you're in journalism for, then I don't know why you're in journalism. And like, these are the people that frustrate us day in, day out. And when your journalism goes from telling stories to, I want to be this big egotistical person who tells the best, more important stories than everyone else. Meanwhile, you're telling the story that a local journalist probably could have told better than you because they know more than you about the subject. Like, why, why is this happening? It's just very frustrating. As journalists, we're literally 19 to 21 years old on the panel today. We're seeing these problems. Like, I don't want to discourage future journalists. I really don't because we need more. As Kirsten said, anyone can do journalism virtually. There's any, it, all things need to be covered. But like know what you're getting yourself into and know the issues and understand them and understand how to fix them and really fight for change. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you go can ahead. go. No, no, no. You can go. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think like you, Haley, you bring up like a really good point. And going on, it really doesn't make sense that a student has to pay to take a professional program. So you're paying to work for free, which in my mind is mind-blowing and I'm not going to go any further than that but I think that brings like a difference between national and local journalism where you have people on Twitter who are saying the media isn't covering this like that I immediately thought of that um and it's just like I saw someone someone like 
uh, quote tweeted someone and they like reported on a local like newspaper that reported on the issue. And I think that um, goes to the question of how much local journalism, like it really matters in our society. And I think local journalism is so downplayed because that's all we focus on is like national media, like national stories, like local journalism does such great work. Yeah, I agree. I think local local journalism is one of the backbones of journalism. And I think like it's it's kind of similar to like grassroots organizing where you're probably going to see the greatest effect and gain the most like, I guess, like work the most closely with like folks around you. I have like everything that y'all are saying is so um, resonant, I think, because um, I guess breaking down, because um, I do want to kind of respond to like all of these different things that you brought up. So I was typing out some notes. And I guess one of the things, um, going back to like what y'all were saying about, you know, these intergenerational mentorships, I think one of the reasons it's hard is because like the onus is always on young journalists to reach out. Like people will tweet out, oh, you should DM me if you want, you know, a mentorship or why don't you join or um, yeah, like DM me if you want, like, um, if you're interested in learning tips for mentorship or like posting things on the timeline, but it is hard for like people who, you know, are just starting in the field to make that first step of actually reaching out and forming that connection. And like, I, I don't know, I also feel like it's, it, it's hard to form relationships with older journalists who, it's kind of like finding the right therapist almost, you know, if you have the luxury to look around, it's one of those things that you end up having to do because sometimes people don't have the same values as you in terms of what they want from journalism um, and how they approach the field. And so I guess it's also, that's another thing that compounds like the, the difficulty of finding a mentor, somebody who can help guide you through your career because different people have different ideas of what journalism should look like. And I think it's really frustrating to um, to to kind of go to your point, um, Kirsten, about like um, disabled journalists um, and folks who are able to cover their communities better. Like journalism is so ableist, like and so exploitative, um, or just like as an industry um, and in terms of expectations. Um, if you look at it as it is now without um, what you were saying, Haley, about the whole, you know, the core of journalism is storytelling or is record keeping, um, you know, um, just sharing what people have already been telling, then like the industry itself as it stands now is very like, while there are spaces that are not like this, the expectations of the industry, you know, like there are job postings that are like write three to five um, articles per day. And, um, you know, for folks who have like mental health struggles, like I, um, I have bipolar disorder. That's not always really feasible for me as somebody who wants to be in journalism, let alone, you know, the exploitation and the clickbaitiness that can come from being forced into writing just like you know, um, attention grabbing pieces just to keep churning out content. Um, and like in terms of physical like disabilities, if you can't, um, you know, there's a lot of travel required for stories and stuff like that. Um, 
And so if you don't, like, if you're not able to drive then, or not able to take public transportation, then automatically that's something that can disqualify you from a lot of jobs. Um, and I guess, I don't know, another thing that I was thinking about is um, kind of something that wasn't necessarily brought up before is this idea of, you know, representation, um, especially for journalists of color or, you know, non-cis straight white men journalists or white male journalists. Um, because there's a lot of, you know, it is really important to have people from communities covering those communities, you know, folks who have disabilities covering, um, you know, disability beats and stuff like that. Um, but something that I've been really thinking about for the past like couple of months is, you know, like, what does it mean to really seek that kind of validation and representation in these really white dominated spaces? Because, you know, media culture or media itself is very steeped in, um, white expectations and like you know there is I don't know if any of y'all have felt this but at least in terms of telling stories um you know uh, uh, for me I'm Filipino American um I feel like a lot of stories that I've seen on you know Asian Americans or um yeah, Asian Americans tend to fit into this kind of narrative of like, oh, you know, we're going to write stories about the model minority, or we're going to write stories about like, um, immigration, or we're going to write stories about, you know, I don't know, etc. And I, I guess I'm going on a rant here. But to bring it back, I'm curious about what y'all think about what that that might look like, you know, how do you build a media that isn't so like, that isn't so steeped in these kind of white standards and what does it mean to like, what do you sacrifice when you ask for, you know, recognition from standards that maybe you don't even want to meet, if that makes sense. I feel this so much because I, I, I say I'm not, a, I'm not too ashamed to say this, but I kind of am like, I would be lying if I said I didn't seek validation from like white people in journalism, because I absolutely have. And it's definitely not something I'm super proud of, but it's definitely something I've done. And, you know, I think this year, especially my eyes have been open to pretty much like the realities of the world, because although like I'm a person of color, I, I have to acknowledge that like, you know, I do kind of live in like a, um, from like a position of privilege, not in terms of like financials, but just kind of like, I've never had to truly be um, challenged. Ch I mean, I have, you know, had experiences with racism in the past, but my life has not been so colored by racism as other minority groups have. And I acknowledge that. And also um, not, you know, not being, you know, not knowing of those experiences. I think this year I've definitely found out so many more journalists of color um, specifically black journalists and you know found their work and I realized just how wide the web of journalists is and before you know I kind of thought you know being a white writer at the New York Times was the pinnacle of journalism but you know through kind of just finding just such the wide web of journalists I was talking about you know there's so many different niches as the panel talked about and so many different ways to do journalism um, you know, you don't have to be in a fancy publication. Um, you can just do your own independent thing, um, kind of like Robert Evans did. Um, you know, he's not necessarily independent because he works for media companies, 
but he's not necessarily tied down to any uh, expectations necessarily. So I think for me, it's kind of learning, um, learning to learn from other people because I've, I'll admit like I've seen other journalists success and I've taken that personally and compared myself to that journalist and been like, oh, well, I'm not as good as them or I won't be as good as them. And, you know, I think for me, it's like, I shouldn't look at it like that. I should look at it as like an opportunity to learn from that person and read their writing. And I think that's something as journalists that we can do, we should do more often is to learn from each other's writing because we all have unique talents and none of us can do what each other does. Like we all have our own set of talents. And I think one thing that can feel very suffocating by journalism is the rigid structure of the writing aspect of journalism. Um, I think one thing that holds a lot of people back from journalism is kind of like the inverted pyramid structure that we're kind of all taught to initially start off. But there's so many other ways of writing um, that I want to explore. And I think that, you know, only teaching that style of writing is kind of, you know, counterproductive because there's so many different ways to write and be a journalist. And I think we should, you know, learn from each other's work and um, make sure, you know, I hold, you know, BIPOC journalist work in the same regard as white journalists. Because in the past, I wasn't, you know, even though the work might have been the same, I might have praised the white journalist more just because they had more prestige, so to say. And I think that's something we can, our, I guess I don't want to project on anyone. I just think as journalists, we can always look inside and look at the biases that, not necessarily the things that we write about, but just the biases about media and who works in media and making sure that we're really not making any mistakes as to where the talent lies because the talent lies everywhere. But I think that coming in, we're taught that the talent lies at the top and it lies in whiteness. And that's just not true because talent lies everywhere. Full disclosure, for anyone who doesn't know because you listen to us, I'm 100% white. I am like fully European. I am as white as you can possibly get for a human being. So, you know, me talking about people of color, I, I'm not one of them. I can't represent people of color. And I know that I can support them. I do support them. And that's really important too. You can be an ally. You can be a supporter. You can shout people's name from rooftops and shout them out on Twitter and do all that. And that's good. That's helpful. But looking at, as Alejandro said, looking at white people as the epitome of journalism, like, no, not a good thing. Stop. Stop doing that. There are um, I'm blanking on his name, but there's a writer for the Washington Post who covers the Washington football team. He is an African-American. He is a fantastic writer, writes columns, fantastic work, just great. And like people don't know about him and he's a successful man writing for the Washington Post. Below the New York Times, probably one of the most successful newspapers out there. I've been having published work since I was like nine years old, to be honest with you all. I've been to professional baseball clubhouses where every person I see in that room is probably white, unless they're Latino because they can speak Spanish and that's great because you're talking to a baseball player. I've been in NBA places where they, the one token black person, it's like, wow, this is amazing because they can relate to them. Like, can we stop this idea of 
we're hiring them because they can relate to whoever. Yes, it's important that people can relate to them. But like, can we look at people besides, oh, your color, you can relate? No, you you can write, you can edit, you can produce, you can do so much more. Like the color of your skin should not be the reason you're employed. I, like I, that doesn't sound good. The way I'm phrasing that is not good. And I'm well aware of that, but you should be employed because of your ability to do work. And there are so many people of color that can do amazing work and do do amazing work and should probably be employed over the white people who look good on camera or can write an amazing lead. Wow. Wow. I'm impressed. Consider me amazed. You can write a lead. You should be hired. No, no. If you can like think of creative ideas and write good expressive stories, that's the person I want hired. That's the person whose journalism as a journalist, I'm going to read, look at, watch, retweet, whatever. They're the people we should be paying attention to. Absolutely. I, I think I, what I took away from what you said about like being hired because of the color of your skin, I think what I took away from that was it should be based on recognizing these people's talents. Like Alejandra said, the talent is everywhere, including communities of color, not just with white journalists. That's not to say that white journalists are worse or bad. It's to say that, like, Alejandra said talent is everywhere in that sense. And I think another thing that I find personally really frustrating to see is people being tokenized, especially in places of employment. And especially sometimes like I have kind of experienced it, not in the sense of race, but in the sense of gender, where there's been instances where I've been the only woman in a room, in a newsroom, or on the cast of like a radio show. And while that's fine and dandy, I do kind of find myself working against the possibility that, oh, look, it's, it's our token girl, if that makes any sense. And I'm sure, Haley, this is something you experience, especially as a sports journalism major, because there's even less women in that area. It's literally a horrible problem in sports journalism. Like, one time about journalism being dominated by males. Sports journalism, you add the word sports in front of it, and your number of women goes down, like, significantly. But not even there. Like, this is, okay, we, so Madison was the one we used to have on this panel. And, like, I said to Gideon, as we were trying to find someone to replace her, and replace is not the right word, we didn't replace Madison. Madison left on her own accord to go do amazing journalism things. I said to Gideon, if we want to bring in another male, that's fine, because I don't have a problem with males. Males, are, for the most part, they're great. Like, if they do good journalism, I'm happy to do it. But like, I would like another female, please. <laughs> so that it's not just like, oh, we have the one female sports person talking. I was like, that's that's a horrible thing for me. Like a female right? presentation. I was like, this is not what I want. So like, can we find another female reporter, please? Like literally specifically for this show, it was a point of emphasis, which Gideon could speak on because I see him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I want to add to that. Um, I want to add very briefly, and then we'll get back to the main discussion. Um, Kirsten was the only name that came up. Um, yeah, th this is a thing she knows. We've had this conversation. Everyone else on this panel knows this, but this is not a thing I've said publicly. She's the only person that came up. She's the only person any single person brought up. We could not think of anyone else. 
So I just want to bring that up there. Like, yeah. For like two hours, be like, hmm, who can we bring? It would be like, Kirsten, okay, talk, 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 because we are the most chatty people you will ever meet on the goddamn planet. Talk, 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 Kirsten. Okay, who else do we know? Who else do we know? Yeah, no one. There was no one. Man, you guys are making me blush. (laughs) But I think just in general, though, like kind of steering back. Also, thank you guys. That's... (laughs) my heart is so warm um (laughs) but I think just in general as well there's an element of performativeness when in spaces like sports journalism regular regular journalism and things like that in terms of gender in terms of race there's this kind of performativeness that comes along with having a token insert whatever here right where whatever organization, station, publication, whatever it happens to be, they can point to and say, look, we're diverse. We have one of this person. It doesn't really work that way. And on top of that, it just feels, at least to me, in my view, it feels kind of wrong in the sense that you're commoditizing, I forget the exact word, but you're making a commodity of these people as opposed to treating them equally to their peers and hiring them for the merits of what they can do. In a weird way, it's like degrading. It's like, okay, exactly. Uh, because of whatever reason, color, skin color, you know, right. city, religion, gender, whatever. But like, right. I don't think anyone wants to be hired on the basis that they are different or weird mm-hmm. or for and I'm doing air quotes for you those of you who can't see it for whatever reason because like it's no I want to be hired on the fact that I'm good at what I'm doing exactly and these things that make us quote-unquote different or you know it informs journalism in unique ways especially depending on your experience with those things but it's not what I think that journalists should be reduced to not at all yeah, no, I think y'all are making really good points. So I agree with everything being said here. And uh, early on, like when Janelle started this conversation, she brought up the whole tension of reform versus revolution in journalism. And especially this conversation among journalists of color is a pretty important one because it's like, okay, are, are we going to go into these institutions are we, are we going to form a, a forge a new path? And people have different answers to those questions. And maybe both. I mean, there's ways to do, like, or is there something in between? I, it's not, it's a tricky dilemma there. And yeah, Janelle, I wonder if, if you want to speak a little more on that. Yeah, so I guess, first of all, I think like, the points that y'all are bringing up around tokenization are super important because it is really frustrating to be looked at as like, I guess, a topical expert. Um, I had a professor once whose class I dropped because, well, there's a lot of reasons I dropped the class, but one of them was just the way that he referred to other people in the class. Like it was very small. Um, 
And he would look at me and he'd be like, oh, Janelle, you know all about Filipino culture, right? Like, or, oh, the Filipinos do X, Y, and Z. And it was just really uncomfortable because like, I wanted to be there. Like, I think there are healthy ways to acknowledge that people, you know, to not be colorblind. Because I think that's really important to, to like acknowledge that, you know, everybody comes from a specific standpoint, a specific race, a class, gender, um, et cetera. But at the same time, like, <laughs> Like, like y'all were saying, um, just because you come from a specific, you know, standpoint doesn't mean that you're an expert on all of the people who share that, like, you know, that race, that gender, that class, because um, everybody has their own unique lived experience. But I, I also do want to kind of move away from the language of meritocracy of like, oh, people, you know, succeed based on their merit because society is really fucked up and like, labor is valued according to, you know, race, gender, and class. And so even if, you know, even, even what we decide or even what the standards of, or even what journalism decides is good, like, you know, even down to like the English language and what good grammar and good storytelling are considered, that's very much shaped by like, you know, white, cis, straight men. And I know I keep going back to that, but I think like, that's really important to, to just touch on. Um, because in terms of like building something different, I feel like the first step is to move away from those standards, you know, like there's so much, um, there's so much hesitance in journalism. I think much, not much less so, but little less so after the summer to, you know, really own the standpoint that you have as not just like, you know, oh, um, you know, I'm a female journalist, for example, I'm not a female journalist, I'm a non-binary journalist, but like using female as an example, like, or, um, you know, I'm like a journalist from a low income background, et cetera. Um, what was I going to say? Like, going beyond that, um, I think one of the first steps is really embracing like full personhood when you come into like a space, whether or not that is a journalism space, you know, um, there's this, um, like one of the defining things I've read um, is this paper by someone named Donna Haraway, who's a feminist scholar um, in science and tech studies, which is my major. Um, and she wrote something that basically says, you know, um, there's no such thing as the view from nowhere, which basically means, you know, everybody comes from a specific standpoint. There's, there's actually like, um, a really cool podcast about this. Um, Lewis Raven Wallace. Um, they have a podcast called "A View from the View from um, Somewhere," which, like, I'm not sponsored. I wish I was. Their podcast is great, um, but that that podcast and that kind of theory has really shaped the way that I approach reporting and just thinking about not only journalism but just life in general. Um, and bringing that attitude, I think, to just any kind of media spaces where somebody's full personhood is rewarded and showed up or rewarded and um, just celebrated, I think um, is really important as well as like kind of dismantling this idea of journalism has to be like fast, fast, fast. Like breaking news is important. Like I don't wanna, I do, I do think it's really important to still have structures in place to, you know, have breaking news, but there has to be healthier ways to do it than just, you know, stop, start on the scene, talk to people, you know, like very much just extract quotes. Like I wonder, 
I don't necessarily have a solution. I'll be the first to say that, but I, I hope that there's some way to like do it more thoughtfully, more intentionally than just swooping in and, you know, immediately talking to these, like, for example, people who have been in an accident, like you, you're really going to talk to people who just got really shaken up. Like that seems wrong and like bad, just in general, um, you know, and there's so many other things like, you know, we've seen this this summer, but, you know, media's over-reliance on cop statements as like factual truth without, you know, additional verification and stuff like that. Um, but I think another thing too, on the topic of, you know, slowing journalism down so that that gives space for people to work with journalists to tell their stories. Um, I think this, I like, um, something you said, I think Alejandro, you said this earlier, you know, we need, we should be looking at other folks writing and be learning from them. Like I think community care especially is really important and just having this really, um, just like building somehow like a community of journalists who are truly there for each other, like to support each other and to like have, I guess, these discussions of what it means to like you know, how do we go beyond representation politics into something that like really creates sustainable and empowering and equitable like change in media and the way that like journalists interact with their communities? Because I think at the end of the day, um, to kind of modify what Haley was saying, um, yeah, I think journalism is about storytelling, but more importantly, I think it's about record keeping. It's it's about, you know, you're taking you're taking a record of folks, you know, who have already been telling stories for, you know, um, you know, their lives are stories and they've been telling their lives, you know, their stories for, you know, as long as they've been alive. Um, and all journalists are really doing is taking a snapshot. Um, and hopefully as, I don't know, as this generation of journalists, oh God, I feel so old um, saying that. I don't know why I said that. As folks, like, as more folks, um, you know, go into journalism who have you know, different beliefs around what journalism should be and look like and feel and, you know, just um, the impression that journalism has on other folks, hopefully that is something that changes that um, people are more willing to work with community instead of standing at some like weird pedestal above people and to make sure that their contacts with their sources, which I know is something I'm still personally working on, aren't transactional, that, you know, it's not, um, Kirsten, you said something earlier about like parachute journalism that I thought was really important to, to bring up again, you know, um, about kind of um, combating that, you know, um, finding ways that even if you're not from a community, you, um, you build those relationships because journalism, like everything else is relational. And I think like that's that kind of journalism that's, um, you know, that emphasizes relationships more than relationships, even when there isn't a story payoff to be published, I think that's um, something that will be really powerful and that will help or not help, but yeah, I think that's just something that'll be really powerful. I'll literally just advertise by local journalism. It's the best form of journalism because these are the people that are on the ground talking to people from this place literally every day, you know, okay, read a story about someone in Minnesota from someone who lives in Minnesota, has been writing in Minnesota for, you know, X amount of years. You can have your Minnesota coverage from CNN if something big happens in Minnesota, but the local journalists are going to tell a better story. Ultimately, that's just kind of the case. 
And like, if you're a drop-in reporter, whatever the t- parachute, that was the term we were using earlier, like maybe contact the local journalists. They probably know more than you do. And like the best stories are stories that are developed. My favorite type of stories to read are stories that journalists have been working on for like 10 plus years. Like the in-depth reporting there is amazing. What these people find, what they investigate is incredible. And we need more journalism like that. Like I'm not saying get rid of the quick base, like fact journalism, that's important too. But like, you know, Cronkite trains us to be the type of journalists who literally sit at an anchor desk are like, welcome to the nightly news. Today, we're going to talk about this murder, this car crash, and if there's an election happening, this thing in the election. I don't want to talk about the car crash that happened down the road. Like, I'd rather tell you a story about some local business that's been thriving for, you know, 10, 15 years, and here's why they're important and an impact to our community. And I think most journalists I know, at least at Cronkite, are more interested in that type of storytelling. People like feature stories, people read feature stories, and journalists like writing feature stories. So if you can support the people who are writing feature stories and more interesting storytelling, please do it. I know paying for journalism is hard, but like if you have the capacity to do that, do that, because then we can eat food and you can read the journalism you like to read. Yeah, I, and yeah, no, agreed, Haley. And I just want to go quickly back to a point Janelle said earlier um, on, on like expecting to be like this voice for a community. Well, sometimes it, it's like, okay, those of you who know me, it is no surprise. I'm black. <laughs> that is not, that's like not news to anyone who knows me. But also, particularly, I'm Black and my family's from Kenya. Like, that's my heritage. And so that kind of gives me a slightly different perspective here. And it's like, not all Black people think the same. There's a lot of diversity in that, in that cat, in this artificial construct, because yes, racial groups are artificial constructs. Let's get that straight. In this artificial construct of race, there's so much diversity there. And it's like, so like how we talk about immigration primarily is like a quote unquote Latino issue. It's not just a Latino issue. It's a, to me, it's a black issue. That's a thing that affects my family too. Like, um, and like all these, you know, it, it's kind of infuriating that like at once, like we ignore the diversity in such a large group and like, especially in non-white groups, especially, because that's where we do it because and also expecting to be that voice, expecting to be the one person who's like, you are the black person, you speak for all black people. No, I don't. <laughs> I absolutely do not. I find that, I'm laughing because I find that hilarious. I do not speak for all black people. Um, I speak for myself when I am talking, like I speak for myself, I speak from where the background I come from, but no. That is a point that sticks with me because that's happened before. There's people who, who take me as like the quote unquote, because especially because I grew up in a very, very white suburb. Uh, like people who would take me as the black voice. It's like, no, I'm not. Like, <laughs> and that still happens in college. It's like, no, like, come on, don't be stupid. I, I don't know, Gideon, that's kind of a tall ask for people. <laughs> 
I ask for the bare minimum and I don't get it sometimes. Yeah, apparently that's a tall ask. You know, like, see us as people, please. Exactly. What? (laughs) Relatives, like, how are we supposed to speak for a whole community of people? Like, I don't know what my dad's thinking. I don't know what my brother's thinking. Exactly. I'm supposed to represent what every person of any category I fall into thinks. Like, no, not a reality. And I think I think that's kind of going back to what's been said before. That's why it's so important to broaden and enrich your worldview by reading what other people have written, what other people have gone through, because they can't speak for their entire community. But like Gideon was kind of saying, they can speak for themselves. And it's so important to listen because... I think the another kind of issue that we run into just as people, but especially in the journalism space is wanting to be a voice, wanting things to kind of tie back to me and how good I look and how important the work that I do is when that's not really what the point should be, in my opinion, anyway, I don't know. I don't know anything, but (laughs) like, yeah, having the savior complex is not what we're here to do we're here to be a microphone for people and being able to help facilitate that understanding of others so that we stop reducing people to the categories that they fit in but so that we're also able to acknowledge people for those things that make them who they are and color their point of view um I have nothing else to say right now. <laughs> we learn at Crownkite is if someone says something, don't echo what they say. <laughs> Let the source speak for themselves. Like if, I don't know, I'm using this as an example because this happened in a video I was helping someone at today. The journalist said something. Trisha for the softball coach, said the exact same thing. If she says it, let her say it. Let them tell their story. They are the expert. They know the story better than you do a hundred times. I promise you, you are not the expert on the subject unless you literally are the one who lives through it. But in that case, please don't report on that. That's probably a conflict of interest. I don't want you getting in trouble. So 99% of the time, let the person you're talking to speak unless they like speak another language and you've got to interpret it or like they speak some really broken English or like they cursed and you can't have curse words, like let them do their job. That's what they're there for. That's why you're talking to them. If they weren't a good source, you wouldn't be talking to them or you shouldn't be talking to them. I think one thing that's like, the, I think the one issue to me that has like really hit me at my core about anything else is the idea that, excuse me, we shouldn't be attached to our stories and that we need to have a certain distance from the people we're talking to, or, you know, we're not writing for our people. We're not writing for our audience. Like we're not writing what they is important to them. We are writing what we deem important. Like, no, like if you're a journalist, there's no way you can, totally emotionally detach yourself from a source or a situation or a story like if we're telling a story it's because we want to tell that story and because we're emotionally invested in it and I think this our stories are better when we are emotionally invested in those stories because we'll put more care and we'll be um, I think we'll be a lot more tender towards the storytelling 
and tell it in a way that's, you know, telling a good story, but also making sure that we represent that person in the best way possible. Because if we just go in and ask them a bunch of questions and we're like, oh, cool. And then we try to put it in like a cool journalistic, like, you know, this is cool, like kind of trying, I guess like, lack of, for lack of better words, sexy storytelling, like kind of, you know, making it out of this world or, you know, seem really mysterious. Like, no, it's like, not every story is cool and sexy and fun. And, you know, you can tell in this sort of fun narrative way, like sometimes the story is really sad or it's really complex and has layers or maybe it doesn't have a lot of substance, but through your writing, you can kind of add more to it, you know, because we're invested in that story. So I think, you know, journalist institutions need to do away with the notion that we can't be connected to the story in any way, because why I'm not going to want to tell a story that I'm not connected to. Yes, sir. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys really quick what you think about what Alejandro was talking about, about like the idea that we as journalists have sometimes this reflex to reshape and make these stories sexy or exciting. What do you think that has taught? Hmm, let me rephrase. What, if any, kinds of ties do you feel like that has to the idea that a lot of journalists go into this with a savior complex? I will answer your question in about five seconds. I just have something I want to respond to Alejandro. Catch me rooting for the teams I'm writing for. Like literally not supposed to do that. Such a horrible thing to do. But like I've, I've covered a high school for like multiple weeks. It's more fun to write about a team when they win. Like how can I not sit here being like, yes, when they score a touchdown. Obviously I'm not doing that on the sideline because like that is not not okay. Just not a good thing to be doing. But like smallest scale example of like journalism being attached to like what you're writing about, like talk to any sports journalist who covers a team locally, they're gonna tell you I slightly root for this team, it's fine. But like on air, would I be like, oh, they won today, yay? No, no, I'm not gonna do that. There's a line somewhere. And then as far as what you were saying earlier, Kirsten, I think, I don't know why we have to make our stories more exciting than they are. If it's a story worth telling, shouldn't that be exciting enough? Like someone's gonna click on it eventually or look at it and maybe they won't. But if, you know, I wrote a story about this underprivileged kid who goes to this super wealthy school in Scottsdale. I don't think, a, like that story did not do very well, but his mom reached out to me later that day and was like super thankful and that made like my whole week. I didn't care that the story wasn't loved and you know, jazzed up and sexy and whatever, because the one person I wrote that story for probably, or maybe the three, four, five, whatever, they appreciated it and they got what it was for. So ultimately, if the community I'm trying to reach appreciates it, then like for me as a journalist, that's enough. If I get something out of it, I learned from writing that story. There's a small thing to take away from every story you write. So you just have to look at it and be like, okay, did I grow? Did I learn? Did I reach the audience I was trying to reach? No, maybe I didn't. Okay, how do I move forward around that? So I think the people with huge egos might have that issue, but like, stop being so egotistical. <laughs> like, I know that's hard. I know that's a stupid and naive thing to say, but like, 
like egos just need to go away. I wish I could just make them go away. That would be nice. I guess I have something I want to add on to with regard to like conflicts of interest because that's something that's come up like a couple times and I think I want to really push back against this idea that like conflicts of interest are quote unquote bad because like I think a lot of times the things that we care most about are also the things that we're most critical of like um, you know if you care about something a lot of times you like hold it to a higher you can sometimes hold it to a higher standard because you appreciate it because you expect a lot of it like a lot of the pieces of media that I love the most like Ladybird, for example literally the reason that I dyed my hair like um you know I love the movie but I'm still critical of Greta Gerwig and you know the stories that um you know she prioritizes and stuff um and I think that it's I hope that in the future people can be more open to trusting that somebody can tell a story about something that they like, oh, shocker, have been involved with before, or, you know, have feelings about without being, you know, a PR release, because everybody, like, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that people, um, I guess that goes to another thing that I, I've been thinking about. Journalism doesn't often hold space for nuance. You know, the fact that a lot of times there's these um, black and white narratives that get set up, which is really like, that's also not how the world works. And all the time, like there's always, everything is on a spectrum, which is really frustrating. <laughs> but also, I guess like that's something, something journalism often fails to capture not saying that individual writers don't do this not saying that there aren't folks who strive to do this but just as an industry I think the way that journalism is structured lends itself to kind of this black and white narrative you know getting specific sound bites and structuring them so that um you know they fit a prescribed narrative which I guess was something um that when you when you um mentioned you know sexy storytelling Alejandro um that made me think of that, you know, a lot of times um, the sound bites get shaped into something that fits what is acceptable, like to white people, you know, like, you know, I think I said this before, but, you know, catering to a specific narrative that is what the audience, usually white people are used to. Um, so for example, like Gideon said, you know, immigration as just a Latino issue. Um, and I, I don't know, I think that all stories are worth telling, you know, like the audience, I liked what you said a lot, Haley, about, you know, thinking about the audience you want to reach, like, because at least for me personally, like, I want to tell stories for the community that I'm working with, um, you know, and a lot of times, um, there are specific stories that are, uh, you know, for the Filipino community, for, or Filipinx community, for folks that I care about, and if it doesn't, like you said, if it doesn't reach if it reaches that audience, then like you've done the job that you want to do. And it's not, I think that's, I guess, um, something that I'm still working towards realizing that just because a story doesn't get, you know, the most clicks or it doesn't get a bunch of retweets or, you know, it doesn't win the, an award from SBJ or get some kind of, you know, some kind of recognition, then like it, it doesn't mean that the story wasn't worth telling. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad writer or that, you know, um, this story is necessarily bad. It just means it wasn't recognized by a specific audience. And that isn't a bad thing, especially if that wasn't the audience you wanted to reach. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my take on that.
Yeah, um, I just wa wanted to <clears throat> ask, like, we've, we, this is good. This conversation's gone on for a while, and I'm thankful for everything everyone has said. This is, this is one that you can start and never really stop because there's a lot of angles to take it on. I just wonder, like, given the time, if there's anyone else who has any final thoughts. I do want to say this, and it's probably too big of a topic to keep going, but I think going forward as journalists, we need to find ways to find our audiences that aren't online, because so much of journalism lives online. And I know that we think that everyone is online because everyone that we work with is online, but you know, there's probably so much of our communities that are online in a certain degree, like they may be online at work or in certain places, but when they go back home, they don't have any internet and they're not online in that capacity. So I think, you know, we need to find ways to reach our audiences that aren't on the internet and aren't like tech savvy, because sometimes I think about what is the scope of our work if it only lives on the internet and only people who have access to that or at least consistent access can read it. So I think that, you know, we need to find a way to, you know, I'm not saying necessarily we need to like, you know, write newspapers and only newspapers, but I think we need to find some way to bridge that digital gap because I think so many people aren't aware of the news ecosystem at large, not because um, of their fault of their own, but because we haven't really reached out to them in any meaningful way to let them know that we're here and we are willing to tell their story. So I think going forward, we should also find ways to find our communities that are offline. Yeah, I think that's super true. Um, and like really valuable too, because those, especially because like those folks are also part of like, you know, they also have priorities, they have stories that they are telling and things that are important to them, but often they get like kind of passed over because, you know, a lot of news is very focused online. Um, some of the things that I've seen actually, they're really interesting. Um, I know there's this one kind of community paper slash newsletter called the Ivanhoe Soul, Soul, Soul. It's in the, um, I think somewhere in SoCal slash the San, the San Gabriel Valley. And essentially like it's, it's a community paper where there are, you know, there are news articles, but there's also um, stories, creative writing, nonfiction, um, articles themselves submitted by community members. Um, you know, they post events and stuff like that. Um, and then there's also, I think, unrelated to this, there's news outlets that have done like text messaging services and stuff um, to reach other um, other folks. And I think strategies like that are also really important or, you know, events um, in the community like Cap Radio did, um, or Capital Public Radio in Sacramento, they did a, um, a podcast series called um, The View from Meadowview which is the neighborhood where Stefan Clark was shot, um, I believe two years ago or almost two years ago. And they culminated it with a event um, in Oak Park, which is in Meadowview, that neighborhood. And they just opened up the space for people to share their stories. And I think spaces like that are really important, um, especially with a lot of people for a lot of very valid reasons, not trusting the press with their stories. Like, I mean, the New York Post, what happened there recently was honestly a reason why a lot of people don't trust reporting because people aren't upfront. Like, I think one of the um, most valuable things that I've learned with reporting from somebody um, 
was that they give people who are not public figures like a bill of rights. Like they walk through, you know, what on the record, off off the record, on background kind of mean, um, especially if somebody has never been interviewed before. And like, I, I hope that more reporters do that and not, you know, be exactly and not be like just I don't know, just don't lie, you know, about what you're doing and be upfront, especially when it comes to interviewing folks. And in the chat, we're seeing protect sex workers, which is very true. Journalism does view them as less and also society doesn't view them as, you know, valid workers, but that is labor and that deserves to be recognized as such. Um, but yeah. Well, anyways, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I know we could go on. We could probably go on and continue this conversation for another hour or two, but I, once again, for the sake of time. You'll hear more of us talking about journalism later. Yes. Yeah, um, bold of you to assume that this conversation won't continue and bleed into other episodes. <laughs> oh no, this is a forever conversation. Um, and yes, I just wanna thank uh, Janelle for coming on today. Um, or zooming on in from the Central Valley. Um, <laughs> and yeah, before we do go, I do want to have a, at least a little brief conversation with Janelle. Um, so Janelle, could you tell, like, we didn't do this at the beginning because I'm bad at this. Do you want to tell people a little more about you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I am Janelle. Um, <laughs> I'm really bad at introductions, but um, currently I'm a college journalism network, college, yeah, college journalism network fellow with CalMatters, um, which is a nonprofit newsroom covering California. Um, and so the network specifically is geared around having college students tell stories from the, um, you know, that are specifically based on um, higher education policy. Um, as it relates to college students, featuring college students as sources, and um, hopefully getting stories sourced from folks who are in specific, you know, areas. Um, and then I'm also deputy editor of the Objective, which you su should subscribe to objectivejournalism.org. Um, like fun plug. Um, because that outlet I think has really provided me a space to like have more of these conversations. It's an all volunteer collective. So if you pitch, we will not pay, but I also don't get paid. Um, so I um, will say though that the community there has been really, it's been one of the things that's kept me hopeful about journalism um, because it's a media criticism outlet kind of dedicated to um, gathering more community input and focusing on the ways that you know media has gone wrong and how it can do better. So I'm really grateful for that space. And then I'm also currently a team lead for the Bolosan Center for Filipino Studies, which has probably been the space that's taught me the most about like life in general, or the most educational space that I've been in throughout college. Um, so shout out to, um, I'll send this to them, but shout out Kuya Wayne, because he, he's the associate director. Um, and that space I think has changed my life. And there I'm working on a team um, or working with um, interns to lead workshops around um, issues that are affect both Filipino folks um, and Americans or Filipino Americans specifically. Um, and while also like teaching journalism skills. So those two kind of mesh together. Um, 
Yeah, I think I um, I use they them pronouns. I have two hundred sp- over two hundred Spotify playlists. I just opened a poll on Twitter asking why people followed me, and unfortunately, the leading result is news, which I don't tweet enough about. So, yeah, that's little about me. Yeah, Janelle, I was one of the people that came. I was how I met Janelle is uh, journalism. Um, just online communities of journalists ran right into Janelle and just, we wound up becoming, wound up talking to each other and getting to know, uh, getting to know each other, especially over the one thing you did not plug, um, <laughs> which I'm going to have you talk about now. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, Janelle. I totally forgot that. Yes. Okay. So what Gideon is referring to is my newsletter. Um, because during quarantine, I I think um, well, sometime over the past, over the past, you know, question mark months, um, I decided that I really wanted to, I guess, like make a space for my own writing. Um, I guess from a personal standpoint. And I also really like music and sharing music, but I don't um I never really talk about that or find ways to like say to my friends, hey, listen to my playlist. So, you know, as all burgeoning journalists or people who don't know how to stop talking, AKA me do, I started a newsletter, um, which has been also kind of an oasis that has kind of died as I've gone through the last half of the quarter, but it's actually been one of the most stable, places of personal writing that I've had. Um, I've always tried to start a blog and it never really worked out. Like this is this has been since high school. Um, but this newsletter I think is is really um, important to me, I guess, just as a tool for me to talk about media that I care about, to share music and to also just like talk about growing up and coming of age and all the things that like suck about getting older. Um, and all the things that don't suck, all the things that I do care about, because I have struggled for a long time with talking about things that I care about or things that make me happy. And um, I think the newsletter helps with that. I think it gives me space to like make room for both, you know, things that I'm angry about, things that I'm sad about, but also things that, um, yeah, like I said, make me happy. Um, my latest issue, like at, from the beginning of this month was about Christmas and, um, me liking Christmas and just being an earnest person in general. So yeah, if you are interested in reading um, more about, if you're interested in discovering new music and or reading about some random person on the internet, um, you can subscribe to my newsletter at longwaydown.substack.com. I have repeatedly shouted out her Substack on Twitter and I cannot stop seeing the praises of Janelle's personal writing. They're an absolutely brilliant essayist as far as like the personal, like if if you want that, if you're into that particular genre of writing, Janelle's brilliant at it. And yes, um, and also your stuff at Cal's Mat- Cal Matters has been great. Glad to see that. And no, really just glad to have you on the show. I've been really, this is another one of the, I've been very lo- looking forward to this. This has been in the works for a while. Um, 
No, yeah, I really appreciate you thinking of me because um, I think that's really cool. I, I think all of you are really smart people with lots of cool things to say and I appreciate you letting me join in on one of your conversations. Of course, and we hope to have you many, many, many more times. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, once someone comes on the show once, the, it, it, it's, it's a revolving door. We had Vaughn on twice in a month. Um, <laughs> and Kirsten is uh, basically all that joined the panel. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> started off as a guest panelist and they completely sucked me in with their charm. In uh, What's the word? Intellect and... Since we're over Zoom, they're good lucks. Ah, <laughs> uh, you, you, you speak too highly, both of you. Um, but are there any final thoughts, anything anyone wants to say before we end this episode? The last one, the last and final one of 2020. Can you all believe it? The year we started. Is it even the same year anymore? No, honestly, are we in the year 2025? I feel like I, I feel like I grew up a decade in, in the span of like the past six months. I mean, but this year took five years and also five minutes to go by. Really? I'm just waiting for that. I'm just waiting for that sweet, sweet vaccine. Yes, um, same here. I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Conspiracy theories be damned. Um, so. Anyways, on that note, I, I'm just going to take us out today again. Uh, thank you so much for listening to us um, on the Review Squared over the past almost a, a, about 11 months now. Um, thank you so much. We do wish all of you happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all the other holidays you may, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever holiday or whatever reason you're celebrating. We hope you have a wonderful time. It's it's difficult this year. We get it. Um, I talk about the coronavirus a lot on this show. I'm sure you all know how I feel about things being particularly bleak right now, but I hope you can find find some, take a minute and find some joy. I, I, I wish that for you, for everyone listening, everyone on the panel here. So happy holidays. Thank you so much. And we will be back sometime after January 8th in 2021 to resume this is our season finale oh yeah this is season two it's over season two of the review squared is done it's been cool it's been fun we've done more things than ever and we'll we'll talk a lot more about the show at the beginning of in an episode to come in the third season because we're going to be celebrating one year um <laughs> more to come when that in about a month but anyways that normal things we normally say you know follow us on our uh, social medias if you want to continue the conversation we're at the review underscore squared at review underscore squared on twitter and instagram feel free to talk to us there uh, we're always we're always one of us is online um and yes thank you so much uh, have a wonderful holiday time and we'll see you back in january for season three of the review squared have happy holidays
The song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime.